Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into this week's episode of the Determined Truth Podcast, and it's going to be a little different. We've been, uh, we launched last month how we're going through the Bible in a year, the New Testament in a year, at least, and we're going to cover everything. We just finished a killer series on Mark, had a great guest uh, with Dr. Jace Broadhurst, and that was a lot of fun. Today, we're kind of pausing. We're having a little intermission show uh, before we launch into the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to have a special guest to talk about something interesting that is going to be awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to this one because I have roots with this guy. So Rob, why don't you start uh, with the bio for our guest? Sure. We're glad to have today uh, Jared Swigert. He is the co-founder of the Global of Global Immersion. Previously, he served in vast, various pastoral roles and from churches from Minnesota to California. And he served uh, 13 years, I think it was, as the pastor at Open Door in San Francisco Bay Area, where my son actually went to his church. He served in the steering board of Evangelicals for Peace, as well as we work together on the network of Evangelicals for the Middle East. Jer is also a North American contributing member of the Reconcilers Together Alliance. He's a Pepperdine Cross Sector Leadership Fellow, and he holds an MDiv from Fourth Theological Seminary and is months away from attaining his Doctor of Leadership from Portland Seminary. Maybe we should have me back in a couple months just so we can call you Dr. Jer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, when I got my PhD, by the way, I, I called my brothers up. I'm like, look, no one's going to call me Dr. Robert. I said, but you guys are. Exactly. No, no, I've, <laughs> I've, had, that, I've had that conversation with my, with my siblings and my children. Yeah, you know, okay, so okay. Over, are you make your ones. kids call, call you that as well? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, only my brother. I have two older brothers. I'm like, look, I'm doctor to you. So, yeah. All right, so Jared seeks to learn, love, and lead in ways that disarm violence, bridge differences, and awaken imaginations to restorative possibilities. He's committed to leadership formation, particularly with those who've become disoriented and disillusioned by the incongruence between the values of American Christianity and those of Jesus. He specializes in creating and facilitating immersive learning environments for leaders, teams, and organizations that are yearning to be part of an internal, interpersonal, and systemic repair. As a writer, speaker, and facilitator, he often reflects on the intersection of faith, culture, and leadership and reconciliation. Jer and Jackie, and how many kids do you have, Jer? You got three kiddos. Three kids. Uh, they live uh, in uh, uh, the unceded territories of the northern, uh, how do you say that? The northern Paiute. Paiute. There you go. Paiute, Walla Walla, and Warm Spring peoples known in North American Pacific Northwest, also known as, known as Bend, Oregon, right? He's written in numerous publications and contributed to several books, and he's the co-host of the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast. He's also the co-author of the award-winning book, Mending the Divides, Creative Love in a Conflicted World from IVP. I think that was Christianity Today's Book of the Year in 2018. We won a, an award connected to, um, to mission. Yeah. So not, not, not book of the year, but uh, well, we'll just, for us, it'll be book of the year. No one's <laughs> going to double check us. And, that's, that's an honorary. <laughs> so that was, that was like book of the year. Yeah. I, uh, by the way, the uh, president of Christianity, Day, uh, his last name is Dalrymple. So we're like, we're like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're mostly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you're basically him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kind of, he's like my little brother or bigger, brother. I'm not sure. I think he's older. Anyways. Uh, hey, Jared, welcome. Hey, you guys, thanks for hosting these conversations. It's, uh, it's beneficial to a lot of folks. Fun to be with you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and then maybe the journey that you've been on and, and how it's brought you to where you are now. And I think that's what we really, what we really want to talk about. Yeah, sure. I grew up in the Midwest in uh, really in dairy farm country, a little tiny rural village uh, kind of packed between cornfields, dairy barns and a military fort. And so grew up in a space that was 
largely conservative, Republican, evangelical, very, very white, um, and had a, I would say, I grew up in a space with that I had a, a pretty small understanding of, of what the world was and what my role was in the world. And, um, but it was an incredible upbringing as well, uh, loving parents, incredible siblings, uh, deep and meaningful friendships. But I, I felt like I, as a kid, I was pretty antagonistic toward Christian folk. And that was mostly because in my neck of the woods, I felt like they were some of the most lonely, exclusive, angry folk in the neighborhood. And, mm. um, and I remember um, even thinking at one point, gosh, if God is anything like his people, why I don't want anything to do with him. Mm. And um, it actually, by happenstance, I ended up then going to an, a conservative evangelical private university called Northwestern in, mm. um, in the Twin Cities. And, and I went there because I went to a student leadership camp when I was a kid. And, you know, I think that what I experienced there, I can only now reflect on is maybe an experience of the spirit, like the spirit of the place was really profound to me. Hmm. And so that happened to be the only school that I applied to go to. And I didn't even know what I thought about Jesus. And so I fabricated a bit of a, a bit of a testimony on my application and had enough charm and charisma to work my way into the school. <laughs> and, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying that you lied? I mean, it's a, a it's, a little bit more, it's a little bit more di diplomatic of me to say. Okay. I, you know, I, 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 <laughs> By the way, I know a lot of people that have done the same thing. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I went to a Bible college for a little while and I'm, I'm telling you there's a lot of people that, that yeah, had to have said something funny to get in that application. Right, right. I, I mean, and growing up in the Midwest, I mean, I'm mostly culturally Christian. I know how yeah, to Yeah, of course, sure. Down. I've heard of Jesus. Yeah, sure. And, uh, but, but it was there and it was in the context of relationships with people who put on display a different kind of Jesus than mm. I was familiar with in my upbringing. Oh, nice. Um, that I, I think my awakening or my wobble kind of happened, you know, and it's compelled by this Jesus uh, mm. because the Jesus they, that they demonstrated to me was one that, um, that loved me because he wanted to, not because I could prove my lovability. And mm. I thought that was phenomenal you know and and so my 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 journey toward that jesus really began when i was 19 and and then shortly thereafter an opportunity opened itself up uh for me to go on staff at a huge church in the twin cities mm. uh, so it's really um outside of some experiences at, in the church as a kid it was really my first experience within the the belly of a big monster church where they had the resources and they had the approach to programming that it was like, do it really well, do it with excellence, do it in a compelling way. And lots of people will come and it worked, you know? And so in, in that context, you know, I, they, they really invested in my leadership, in my creativity and in my communication. And so I recognized early on that they were investing in my competency, but as a new ish follower of Jesus, I'm like, at, at what point does somebody start to tend to my soul? Mm -hmm. And so this is an important part in my story. Cause I realized at a, at a really young age, like if, like my, my competency is outpacing my character here. Mm -hmm. And so like, if I don't, do, no one's pursuing the character piece. So if I don't do something about this, I think that's probably a train wreck. Um, and so I just began to build a bit of a constellation of coaches and mentors and sages in my life who I would literally cold call because I watched them and observed their life and thought it was, it was um, compelling the way they followed Jesus. And then I would just ask them, Hey, can, can I learn how to follow Jesus from you? You know, um, one gentleman in particular uh, was a 72 year old businessman who was just an incredible human being. Mm. And, uh, and he made breakfast for me every Tuesday morning for over four years. And wow. I would show up at his house at 6am and we would study the Sermon on the Mount and we would go live the Sermon on the Mount and we'd come back and we'd talk about it. Hmm. You know, so that, that was kind of my, my, the beginnings of my discipleship journey. I, I began to, 
um, experienced some misgivings in, in the large church um, because I started to ask some questions about what we were really accomplishing. Mm-hmm. And um, it seemed that there was a methodology there that we could mass produce followers of Jesus. And I just, I had, I began to develop my own ways of thinking about formation, recognizing that it's gritty and it's slow and it's mm-hmm. not performance-based. And um, at that time, an opportunity emerged on the West Coast where my best friend and I could move together along with my wife. And and the two of us could take over a student ministry in Walnut Creek at Walnut mm-hmm. Creek Presbyterian Church. And I always said that I would move across the country or across the world for excellent leadership. As you, as you maybe heard in my bio, leadership is a big deal to me. And as I interviewed with this individual, his name is Scott Palmbush, um, who's in Menlo Park right now. Mm. Like I, I knew then that I don't even care so much about the reality of the job. I will move to the other side of the country to learn from this guy. Yeah. And So that's what we did. And I got to spend three years under his leadership and we got to do some really fun things with student ministries. But at that time, we began to build some relationships with folks in the pubs and the coffee shops, the East Bay, and started to recognize a massive disconnect between culture and the church. And and I would put it this way, that within the context of the church, folk were really certain who the king was and they had no muscle for actually engaging in the kingdom and Mm. being about uh, fixing broken things in their context. And then in the pubs and the coffee shops, we're meeting all these people who cared very much about the things that God cared about and were spending their time and their energy actually fixing broken things, but they actually weren't connected with a king, with, with Jesus. Mm. So we wanted to start to live in the nexus. We wanted to, to bring friends together. And, um, and that began in our living room. And that was what actually led to the pioneering of Open Door, uh, which is a, a distinct faith community in the East Bay. And Got to help lead that for about 12 years. In that time, I did my end div at Fuller. And then after my Fuller experience was over, the seeds of the Global Immersion Project, which is a peacemaking training organization, were planted. And really, it was a desire to link our faith to God's restorative mission in the world. And I was wondering why in an evangelical context had I never heard anybody actually talk seriously about peace and peacemaking when Jesus is the one that raises it up in the Sermon on the Mount mm-hmm. as, uh, as the, the, the folk will be blessed. So my, my colleague, John, and I, we just went on basically a global quest to learn from people of faith what it means to actually engage in the work of peace and peacemaking. We began to ask questions about whether peacemakers are born or formed. And if we could form them, how would we do it? And we recognize very quickly, it starts with our own formation. How have we and will we form as peacemakers? And out of that, we began to build a methodology um, for how we would, um, we would accompany others in their formation as into what we call everyday peacemakers. And so now that the Global Immersion Project is a 10-year-old experience um, and, and story, and we specialize in immersive approaches to formation, in particular with faith leaders who have had a, a long experience in the incubator of American Christianity and are beginning to catch a vision for its hopeful alternative. They're beginning mm. to question the legitimacy of the religion that they inherited, and they want to take a journey from here to there, but they have no idea how to do it. And so our work is really the slow, gritty, deep work of accompanying them from fidelity to this imperial religion to participation in God's restorative revolution. Uh, so that's, that's how I spend my life now. You've mentioned this global immersion project and you can only, you know, just the, the name itself is so intriguing. It's, it sounds so grand and like, wow, this, this, what is this thing? It sounds amazing. Give us the elevator pitch. What is this thing? What is your involvement? It's something that you've obviously helped launch, but what is it? Yeah, so Global Immersion is is a peacemaking training organization. We're we're 10 years old now, and we began 
with this um, with this question around the integrate, like, is it possible to integrate peacemaking into our vocation as followers of Jesus in the United States? And to, in order to answer the question, we actually developed, uh, we, we didn't want to do like seminars and talks and things like that. We actually wanted to immerse people into the radical center of conflict uh, and usually global conflict. And, and by global conflict, I'm talking about things like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm talking about the crises that are happening at our borders with migrants and refugees and asylum seekers. We, we, so what we did is our hunch was we're not going to be able to teach people into the way of peacemaking, but if we can immerse them mm -hmm. into the radical center of conflict and meet the peacemakers who are embedded in that conflict because they're the best, te the, the best teachers in the world, then perhaps we can begin to awaken our pores to the possibility that we need to become substantively different kinds of people. Hmm. So Global Immersion built these immersion trips, we call them, into global conflicts. We learned from peacemakers in that context. And then our work as the Global Immersion Project was to accompany these leaders as they began to integrate their learning into their life, love, and leadership in their own context, beginning to shape their congregations and their universities and their nonprofit organizations, their constituencies into reconciling communities that actually could participate in repair within their cities. So, so that's, I, that's what we do. Well, and I was going to say, there's so many global issues and depending on what part of the globe you're looking at, the issue could be, I mean, there's an underlining issue, right? But they, they play out in a different sort of way. What does this look like from an immersion process? You know, are, are you, are you focused just in one region or area of the world or one type of people group or, or give us like, like a couple examples if this, if this has a diversity to it. Yeah, you bet. I mean, the, the reason that, you know, and, and we're in the process of a major evolution at the minute. And the reason that we're evolving is because the world is changing. And so when the pandemic hit, um, we were really compelled by Andy Crouch's article about how the mm -hmm. pandemic is going to be less a blizzard and more a mini ice age. Right. And, mm -hmm. and basically his thesis in that article was, the savvy leader in organization will um, understand that it's not like the snow is going to stop falling, the sun's going to come back up, and we'll get back to business as usual. But instead, whatever this thing is, is going to fundamentally reshape the contours of society. Mm -hmm. Well, here mm -hmm. we are two years later, right? And so what he was arguing is the savvy leader in organization will see the pandemic as the crucible for our transformation as leaders and as an, and, as an organization changing us and preparing us to address the world that the pandemic has changed. And so we're, we're in this beautiful evolution right now in terms of refining our audience and shifting our methodology, which I'll talk about in a second. But, but 10 years ago, um, the reason that we selected Israel, Palestine, and the borderlands is because these are two issues that evangelical Christians are adamantly, intimately interwoven with. Do you mean the borderlands of America? The borderlands of America, yeah, okay. especially between, um, between us and Mexico, so our southern Okay, border. okay. And so, I mean, evangelicals in the United States are the most, most fiercely pro-Israel, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and they, are, they tend to be the most fiercely anti-immigrant mm -hmm. anti or immigra immigration reform in the country. And so we've chosen these two issues because they are so polarizing. And in some ways, they're conflicts that we as American evangelicals have contributed to both with our, with our, our finances and with our politics, with our policy. And then we've undergirded it with a particular theology. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, we could have chosen a, a myriad of, of, of conflicts, but global immersion is not interested in, in raising up Israel-Palestine activists or immigration activists. We're raising up everyday peacemakers. And it just so happens that the context for our work is in the context of relationships that we have in these two conflicts that actually happen to be pretty close to home for, for evangelicals. So the immersion process involves a, a time of, of, of study and, and formation and training on the front side. 
that begins to build people's awareness of the conflict that we're about to immerse into begins to build a foundation for a theology of reconciliation and practices of everyday peacemaking as lenses through which now we're going to immerse into the radical center of the pain. So in Israel-Palestine, we go to all the places you're not supposed to go, and we meet with people who, who will never write books, and they'll never stand on stages, and they'll never be on podcasts because their lives and the lives of their people depend on them actually being in the trenches as agents of reconciliation. And we learn from them, and then we come back home and do the integrative coaching on the flip side of the immersion experience. And then that's replicated in the borderlands as well. So let, let me ask one more question before I get in there for Rob, because as, as I'm, I'm hearing you talk, you're doing what good leaders do and mm -hmm. you're, you're spreading the, the fame and fortune around. You're not taking the glory of, for yourself. And you're, you're a guy who has a young guy. You've already done so much in, in your background as a leader and whatnot. This might be a hard question to ask, but like, what, what are the things that you actually do? I know you're, you're going to want to spread the love around to the rest of your staff. And they're probably an amazing staff of a group of people you work with, but just to finish getting to know you a little bit better, what do you do? What's, what's your active role if we were to follow you around in the day of a life of Jer Swaggart? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, on, on my team, I function at 75,000 feet as a visionary leader. So I'm R and D I'm thinking about possibilities and potentials and building uncommon alliances to actually fix and address systems. You know, and so like, that's why I'm, I'm in justice commissions and I'm on steering committees of things. And I'm trying to figure out the, the, you know, global immersion is an entity that needs to be linked in a constellation of multiple entities to actually see kingdom come in this space. You know, so I, a lot of my work is spent trying to figure out what that means on a very programmatic or practical level. My, my expertise is in designing and shaping immersive style learning experiences, whether it's like I just explained or it's in your city, or it's with you in a one-to-one -one context as a leader and, and encouraging you, showing you what it means to actually build immersion that leads to solidarity into a practice of your everyday life, love, and leadership. Hmm. You know, And so I, I think I find the most joy in my work in either designing and facilitating experiences for teams or in the one-to-one -one hyper-relational um, accompaniment work where we're getting into the muck of it together and um, and working through the question, who, who must we become in order to participate with God and others in the, in the work of reconciliation, you know? So I like that personal, especially with folk who have been in, whether it's a cohort with us or an immersive experience with us, to build that kind of relationship through the, the vehicle of a program, and then to go for a long time in one-to-one -one and one-to-team coaching relationships with them as they seek to transform and then transform their entire organization into a reconciling community. I love that work. So if I can summarize it this way, you, you wreck people's lives, right? <laughs> I do, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you, know, you know what I mean? Because when you get these kind of issues, people get embedded in, this, in these issues uh, and they get entrenched in their own beliefs and convictions. And they, they listen to everybody who agrees with them and they pile up all these reasons why they're right. But when they go to the place itself of the conflict and they're immersed in it and they hear people on both sides and they think, oh, wait a minute, this is not what I was told. This is not what I was expecting. You are supposed to be this way so that I can go ahead and rail against you. And you're supposed to be this way. And this conflict was supposed to be. And I remember when I went to Israel, Palestine myself, like my, my third trip over there, and I went for a week all by myself. And I just sat in Bethlehem and walked around the streets and talked with pastors and leaders, whatever. I got home and my wife, Tony, picks me up at the San Francisco airport. We're driving back to Livermore. And she says, well, how was it? And I said, well, it was unbelievable. I mean, you're, you're immersed in this place. You're, you're meeting people on, all, on every side of the wall. You're meeting Muslims and Christians and Jews. I said, there's only one problem. And she goes, well, what's that? I said, 
I can't tell anybody what I experienced because no one will believe me. Yeah. Right. And so you take these pastors and leaders and whatever over there, and then they have to come back to their own context. Right. Right. They're, they're in crisis mode, aren't they? Yeah. And that's, that's the thing though, Rob, like, again, you know, to move, to move beyond Israel, Palestine and, and borderlands for a second, because I think a, I think a misconception of the work of peacemaking reconciliation is that it's macro, it's sensational, it's at mm -hmm. the policy level. And, you know, we're, right. changing, no, we're, we're, we're the argument that we're making is that everyday peacemaking is our vocation, like to immerse into the radical center of pain and join God in the work of restoration. That's the embodiment of incarnation. Right and crucifixion to the point of resurrection, right? Like we're living our faith as everyday peacemakers. And so you're wrecking people's lives like Jesus did then, right? Yeah. Trying to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, trying yeah, to, right. okay, yeah. Okay. As Fair we're enough. being wrecked, you know, but like, yeah. but we're trying to actually sink everyday peacemaking into the bone marrow of mm. our existence. It more like embracing the, the, the mundane everyday realities of this, right? And, and so um, that's one thing. Another thing though is, is like, whether whether it happens in Israel Palestine or it happens in in bridging the difference between who you are and that person who's very different than you in your context mm -hmm. like that is the work that we're teaching people to do so in my context for me right now i i have this beautiful opportunity over the past couple of years to be cultivating a a friendship with an avowed white supremacist and so oh. that's a fascinating wow. friendship to be cultivating and it's amazing for me in in the place where I'm at in my journey to bridge to bridge difference into relate to immerse into the the radical mm -hmm. center of his story and to understand it mm -hmm. yeah. right and then but but I I have the same crisis though is like now when I return to my camp yep I'm like how am I going to describe for people mm -hmm. the fact that this guy actually isn't our enemy mm -hmm. he's a dad and he's a right. lover and he he has a faith and he has convictions and he has fears that fuel a particular ethic, right? Like that's, yep. that's the work of peacemaking. That, that's where the rubber meets the road in right. our world and in our country right now. We have to figure out how to bridge the difference between ourselves and that person who thinks politically differently, theologically different, differently, you, you name it. Like our faith compels us to get proximate to that person and to cultivate a relationship with that person, not to convince them of anything, but to simply love them sacrificially. Right. Because they're image bearers of God. Because and that's what we're called to do. Yeah, because mm -hmm. they're image bearers of the divine. Mm -hmm. right. right. That's right. That's easier. There's so many people, however, that you know that they come home and they don't know how to do that, right? They, they come back from these experiences. And I know you do a good job of pre-trip work that you described and learning everything there is. And they come back from this, but then they get back into their church context and they're like, but I still can't say anything here because right. these people aren't going to listen to me. And, and that creates crisis for them though, right? And are you, you're doing a doctor of leadership and this is part of what you're addressing, is it not? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Because, and here's, here's one of the things I'm, I'm recognizing in my research is I think there's a misconception. There was a misconception that, that we had as an organization that, uh, that we could teach people, we could expose people to some other, to some uh, alternative understandings like some mm. some stories that they never could have had access to before and we thought that exposure maybe learning a new script and grabbing some new tools would be enough but here's right. here's the problem once i bridge difference and i actually get next to this person what gets in the way 
is my theology. Hmm. Ultimately, ultimately, I have a theology. I've been given a faith that has convinced me that this person is a contaminant, that this hmm. person could, could potentially disqualify me. Like I can't, I'm not supposed to get too close to this person. Like there's all sorts of, uh, there's all sorts of theology built mm -hmm. around, built around our inability to actually cultivate a co-creating relationship with this human being. So to your point, Vinny, it's an image bearer of God. Yeah, but I, I wasn't formed in a faith that said that that person is an image bearer of God. Mm -hmm. Now at lip service, of course, but the ethic of the religion that I was given and, and raised up in actually had distinctions around who was actually image bearers of the divine and who wasn't. Flush this out some more. Let me make sure I'm tracking what you're saying. Clarify exactly what you mean by that. The faith that I inherited was one that, that placed a premium on people who looked just like me, okay, right. who thought just like me, you know? And, and for those of you who are listening in, I'm a six foot two white male, you know? Right. And so like, I was actually groomed when I talk about my upbringing in the dairy land of the Midwest in a conservative Republican evangelical space, very pro-military, like it was a white wealthy space. Mm -hmm. And my perspective of Jesus was a man who wore a, a tight blue business suit with a side part. Mm -hmm. I was given a construction of Jesus that actually endorsed my accumulation of wealth and safety uh, to at the at high expense to others. So like if I if I worship a God who's okay with my accumulation of abundance at others cost, that actually mm -hmm. means that I have more of a premium in terms of the image of God than the person who I'm crushing in order to get God's blessing. Yeah, yeah same kind of, I grew up in a tradition that basically said that person's poor and begging because they didn't work mm -hmm. and unless a man works, he yeah. shall not eat. And that our abundance and prosperity, of course, is a sign of God's, uh, of God's blessing upon us. So that mm -hmm. creates this disconnect on your, on your end. So I thought you were going to say, okay, the theological problem is going to be on their, on their end. But you're saying, no, it's on my end because I'm not valuing that the other as, as an image bearer. Exactly. And, but I also think that's a theological crisis is to think like the, the, reason, the reason that we can't be together is because this person has the theological issue. What if we have right. the theological issue? Right. You know, but, but again, I was, I was formed in a form in an American Christianity that put a premium on certainty. Mm, yes, me too. Right. Right. So, so like, certainly I don't have the problem. Certainly the problem lies with this person. Right. Right. And so like, this is, and I, I, I'm becoming, as I continue to walk this faith journey and in relationship with all sorts of different kinds of people, I feel like I'm, I'm meeting a more wild and mysterious Jesus. And I'm beginning to recognize that, that maturity actually doesn't sound like certainty at all. That's actually immaturity. S maturity sounds like wonder, curiosity, desire, you know, like. But that's like, very uncomfortable for so many evangelicals, isn't it? Because absolutely. we are raised in this tradition of certainty I remember being raised in a tradition that basically said, I think the right way, therefore Jesus thought the way I thought. Mm -hmm. And right. so did Paul. And that I can read it, Paul and Jesus, and I know exactly what they're saying. Mm -hmm. But then you grasp th this and you're like, wait a minute, they don't think the way I, so I, my, my background's hermeneutics, biblical interpretation. So, oh, wait a minute, they're not thinking the way I think. And therefore, what do I do with this? And some people don't know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. And they just give up, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and others... 
And others have been trained in that moment to try to convince that person of the superiority of your God thoughts. Yeah, right. So you either give up or you you engage in some kind of rhetorical argument yep. uh, to, to convince this person. And frankly, from, from my point of view, I think we live in an era where like the power of rhetoric and arguments is is diminishing so rapidly. That's right. That that the and here's here's the great surprise. The only thing that has ever changed anybody's mind is love, is relationship. Right, right. And and sacrificial love at that. Yeah, exactly. You know, so like uh, when when you're when you're given when you're given a the priority or or the privilege of certainty then your your weapon or your method is rhetorical superiority you don't like you miss the relationship part and right. that's what i that's what i think that's one of the reasons why i'm i'm watching folks who are my age and younger that they walked away from the church a long time ago yes. because they have huge questions and they're not allowed to ask them because yeah. if you, even if you ask a question it's an indication of, of like weak faith or something rather than the, the important pilgrimage of transformation that is a lifelong journey that we're all on. So to connect the dots to my doctorate, yeah, I'm walking with faith leaders who are navigating disorientation because they're awakening to the values that have shaped imperial Christianity. And they're seeing that the incongruence between that and the values of Jesus. And they have huge questions. They're at the ceiling of their theological leadership and sociological training, and they have no idea what to do. So speak to this a little bit, if you don't mind. I'm sorry, Vinny, if I'm asking all the no, questions. No, it's good. This, I'm trying to remember exactly, exactly the way you just phrased what you phrased. It was this incongruity between what they were trained and raised to believe and what's really happening in the world. I don't think that most Christians, evangelicals understand this. Mm -hmm. They don't see what the problem is. Mm -hmm. Can you help us understand that problem a little bit better? <laughs> okay, real easy question. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Say, so, word the question differently for me. Yeah. So, what what don't what don't evangelicals see from your perspective? They don't see the problem is not with us; it's with the other; it's with them. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, this doesn't jive with 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 Jesus. This doesn't go with Christ. This doesn't go with the scriptures the narrow-mindedness, lack of love, the judgmentalism, all these things that are characteristic of, of evangelicalism, they think, no, it's because you're wrong. Mm, That's what, and they don't, and the younger generation is going, we want to do justice. We want to, we want to bring food to the hungry. We want to bring peace to the, to the people who are in need. We want to bring uh, security and comfort and assurance. And well, no, it's because they're in sin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, I I, I agree. I, I think when you have had, and I think this is a problem for, for we who are evangelical is we've also, especially in the United States, we've been, we've been given permission, especially in the last probably 50 years, more so eh, 50, 50 to 70 years, even I would say we've been given permission to understand ourselves as the powerful ones. Like right. we have power and we prove it and the way that we prove it is with political dominance mm -hmm. we right. can do it right and so and then and then we actually equate political power again with god's favor right and, and so like that that is that is a i see that now as a massive disconnect 
It's also like dangerous. The, yeah. The way that the way that you achieve political power is at high cost to another. Right. It is it is diametrically opposed with the ethics of Jesus. Now, it's I'm also not how saying, you accumulate wealth, and, right? And exactly. is at the expense of someone else also. Exactly. So there we, as evangelicals, we've been, we've given ourselves permission to accumulate wealth and power at the expense of others and interpret it as God's blessing. Right. Right. And so like, why, why we're winning, why would we choose to see it any other way? Right. Right. And so this is, this is the disorientation though that I'm working with, with faith leaders who are like, they're, they're watching, they're watching endorsements and demands for political allegiance by prominent Christian leaders. They're, they're watching mm -hmm. overt and covert acts of greed, racism, and violence be lifted up as Christian faithfulness. Right. And they're like this, I don't know how wrong it is, but it feels wrong. Right. And so now these folk, and I'm talking specifically about faith leaders, but I mean, look at the statistics. I mean, yes. evangelical churches are hemorrhaging, especially because younger folk are like, no, there is a complete disconnect between the ethic of this religion and what I think is probably the ethic of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, all we have to do, like, let's just isolate one passage for a moment, which I think is one of the most important passages that Jesus speaks on, which is, uh, which is John 13, 34 and 35. Which is the only place in the scriptures where yeah. Jesus says a new command. He teaches a bunch of great stuff and gives commentary and a bunch of commandments. This is the only place where he says a new command I give you. So pay attention. This mm -hmm. is the thing. And the thing is love people like I have loved you. Mm -hmm. Right? So if we, can, if we can boil gospel living down to one verse, we can do it, I think, in John 13, 34 and 35. And I think there's a massive and a growing disconnect especially with faith leaders who are like, I have been trained to perpetuate a system that endorses the accumulation of wealth and power at the expense of others. And we've called it Christian. Mm -hmm. And I now am, am disillusioned by it because I actually don't think it's consistent with Jesus of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. I also see, and this is part of what we do is we're saying we, if we're going to take a transformational journey, we actually have to begin to learn about Jesus from non-white folk. Right. So think about this. The Christianity that washed up on our colonial shores. Now, while there's always the remnants that happen throughout the, the, his, the 2000 year history, ultimately, the Christianity that washed up on our colonial shores had an ethic that that manifests itself in genocide, in slavery and plantation capitalism. Yeah. Fully endorsed by Christian theology. Right. Right. The accumulation of wealth and power at the expense of others. And we baptized it as Christian. You know, and, and so like all of that is it, like we're living in the current manifestation of that and folk are beginning to wake up to it. And mm -hmm. what we're doing with the predominantly white faith leaders is we're saying, think about this. Our black sisters and brothers were understood as property, endorsed by a Christian religion, and even in the midst of that milieu, discovered a Christ that was worth following. Somehow, yeah. If they could discover a Christ that was worth following in the midst of all of that nasty, I think we as white folk have a lot to learn about that Jesus. That's where you, you bring in like a Howard Thurman's Jesus of the disinherited. Mm. Like there, when I talk about a wilder, more mysterious Jesus, or sometimes I even refer to it as maybe a bit more legitimate Jesus, I actually think our friends of the disinherited communities or the marginalized communities have a lot to teach us 
But for we who have been placed in positions of power, we have to figure out what it means to humble ourselves, immerse into the point of solidarity, cultivate real friendships where they can, where, where there's enough love where they would dare to tell us the truth. You know, that's a big part of our formation. Hey, Rob, anything coming up for you that you want to let our friends know about? Yeah, we'll be getting some more information out to you soon. But on February 11th, I'll be participating in a Zoom conference uh, from Evangelicals for Justice. Uh, we'll be doing a session on Friday the 11th, and I'll be presenting on Having Hard Conversations in the Church is the title. And my particular section will be Having Hard Conversations in the Church on Israel-Palestine. And I know we'll have a couple other presenters, and they'll be doing Having Hard Conversations in the Church on other topics that you may or may not agree with. But how do we have these hard conversations? So we'll get some information on how to sign up and how to get involved with that uh, as soon as we have it. Awesome. Make sure to check out uh, Rob's Facebook page as I'm sure he'll upload that information and uh, try to check out that event. Jerry, you've talked a lot about disconnect, especially as it relates to searching after power and, and viewing that as God's blessing and that sort of thing. I, I was just having a conversation with a, a friend from my own church today. You know, we're, we're a church that would, I think, rightly criticize things like the prosperity gospel movement where, where God's going to bless you. And especially the ridiculousness that you would see on, you know, from televangelists and, but you just see all, all yeah. this throughout where God just wants you to be healthy and wealthy and you could speak it into existence and this sort of thing. But what I was trying to explain to my friend is that as we would rightly criticize that so many in my own community are going to be searching still after that political favor. And in, in, in the context that I was having with my friend was in, in regarding Christian nationalism. And that was kind of a new yeah. term for him. And we were talking about that and how I was saying, Hey, Christian nationalism is basically just the political version of prosperity gospel. You're just hoping that it happens with your military, with, you know, the resources that you get, so you mm -hmm. can live a comfortable life here. And, and that was the start of a conversation that I know we're going to have to have more conversations and you, you inch along to hopefully break that disconnect. Right. But he's open to those conversations. Mm -hmm. The folks that you've seen over the years and you, you've had, you know, years now of experiencing this with folks as they've walked through this, is there, are there indicators? Is, is there something where, uh, I don't even know how to, how to phrase the question in terms of the tangibleness of it, but is it that someone has to be immersed in the experience to kind of have that aha moment? Is it that they just have to be willing to start the journey and they're willing to have the aha moment even before they get into the thing? Like everyone is so different. There's no magic bullet here, but what are some of the experiences that you've seen, or is there a common denominator in terms of how people kind of get, you know, just being willing to open up yeah. their, their Midwestern type thinking, if you will, to use yeah, you as the, the antitype. Totally. Totally. No, Vinny, that, I think that's, I think that's an excellent question. I think it's like a seminal question, honestly. Um, I like the, uh, another way to ask the question is, does anybody ever choose pain mm -hmm. willingly, you know, and, and most of the time, I think my answer would be no, I would never willingly choose pain. And here, so here's, here's the reality. Transformation is painful my own story. And now, like I, while I said, I, I wasn't, I wasn't raised in the church. And so it wasn't necessarily baked in my bones. It was still in the, the, the air that I breathed. Mm -hmm. I was still fidelis to a system that pointed to the U S military as God's righteous right hand mm -hmm. and a particular party. And in, in my case of the Republican party as like God's, you know, God's political might, God's favor rested with a particular you know party. And, and things like this. And, and so like my pilgrimage, the pilgrimage that we're on of transformation is perilous and it's visceral and it's wildly uncomfortable. 
and it doesn't stop being uncomfortable. And so in, in that case, like if I were to, if I'm just to walk up to a random faith leader and say, Hey, do you want to take a, do you want to take a 40 year old journey? that's going to cost you everything, which right. by the way, I think that's more or less what Jesus. <laughs> I, was, I was waiting to say that. Yeah. 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 You yeah. know, um, did anyone actually choose pain? You said, I'm like, yeah, Jesus. Right. And then he says, then take up your cross and follow mm -hmm. me. So yes. basically anybody who confesses him is supposed to do that. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And, and, but, but for, for folk who identify like me, um, with a, with a lot of privilege, mm -hmm. um, and, and when I'm honest, I look, I look back at the story of my life and, you know, there's not a door that I haven't walked through that wasn't wedged open by someone who looks like me about a thousand mm -hmm. years beforehand. Right. You know, now I, there, there's that, that's not undercutting my work ethic and my relational impulse and my tenacity as a learner and things like that. But like, I live in, I live in a world where doors are not, are not closed. Right. You know, and so my, my, my formation before I began this perilous pilgrimage was the common denominator, the most common experience was success. Mm -hmm. I was formed through success rather than failure mm -hmm. and pain and discomfort. So, so to your, this is a long way to, to answer your question, Denny, in my point, of, from my point of view, at least, yeah, I either think it takes, uh, it either takes visceral pain or it takes a moment of intentional displacement mm -hmm. for a person, for the pores of a person's soul to be awakened to the possibility that they need to become a substantively different kind of human being. You know wow. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Be because it's painful. Mm -hmm. And then what, I, what, what I'm noticing, and this is the ache that brought me into my doctoral research, is once people, once people's, uh, the pores of their souls are awakened, many of them actually embark upon the perilous pilgrimage. But here's the problem. They have been incubated in such a homogenous space mm -hmm. that they know nobody else who is on this pilgrimage. As a matter of fact, this pilgrimage is, uh, is demonized mm -hmm. by his, his or her community of origin, yeah. Yeah. right? And, and so they, they and, and also they, they, don't have any, they don't have any coaches, mentors, or guides who have walked this journey before because they have been isolated from these people in, in order to remain safe. Mm -hmm. yep. you know, so what I've noticed is people actually embark upon the pilgrimage of transformation and then they return to their communities of origin, their congregations, their elders, their staffs, their families. And they're like, hey, I'm asking a new set of questions. And at first their communities of origin are like, whoa, that you're edgy. We like what, what's happening with you. But then when, when the person says, actually, I think I'm serious about these questions. Mm -hmm. That's when the communities of origin will, will threaten your sense of identity, community, and purpose. They'll start asking you questions like, who do you think you are? Or I thought I knew you. Mm -hmm. They'll begin to withdraw themselves and then they'll censor you. And ultimately, if you're a faith leader, they'll threaten your termination if you don't, if you don't return to fidelity to the system. Or they will terminate you. Yeah. Or they will terminate you. So mm -hmm. like, I think people are smart enough to know, like on the other side of the precipice is a perilous pilgrimage that will be costly. I can either return to chaplaincy of the status quo and, 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 and maintain my tenure and my pension and things like that. Or I can take a step into the wild and transform into the revolution. That's the choice I think we're given. This is so, I'm, I'm almost chuckling a little bit because what you're really telling is you're telling the story of the New Testament church because they had the exact same situation. The people that were the problem were essentially the religious elite who guided everybody else but were profiting and benefiting from Roman occupation. Yeah. They were empowered and they were prosperous because of this. And Jesus threatened all of that. Mm -hmm. Now they wanted a Messiah who would come and liberate them from Rome, 
But of course, to do so, that would allow us to retain our power and our privilege and everything else. And when Jesus threatens and all that and said, no, I'm not going to go along with you. Then, of course, they went and got the people and said, OK, you know, crucify, crucify. Yeah. And the disciples had to give up everything to follow Jesus, the family and, and friends and community and everything else. It's exact. Now flip that back 2000 years. And where are we at? We are exactly where they were then, except we have become the them. Mm -hmm. the, the evangelical church, and not just the evangelical church, but a lot of the white church of America has become the powerful privileged entity yeah. that is resisting change, that is re resisting the, the call to discipleship of cross-bearing love for the sake of the other by demonizing the other. And the world is seeing, is seeing the conflict, not just the people within our church, yeah. our kids that are, that are within our church. That's right. Going, Wait a minute. And, and I, would, I would argue like when most most folk that I'm, I'm hanging with outside of like faith leaders that I'm working with exist outside of the, the yeah. small fishbowl of American Christianity. And so like when you're in the fishbowl of American Christianity, you, you th and, and the evidence politically at least is that, boy, we've got a lot of power, but like outside of the fishbowl of American Christianity, here's the critique. And I, this, this is actually a story. I was sitting in Washington, D.C. with a, a handful of global leaders and they asked me why I was in DC and I happened to be there to offer an analysis to a room full of evangelicals on even on some of the themes that we're talking about pre-pandemic um I long to be in a room in Washington DC <laughs> with anybody at this point mm -hmm. but like this group of leaders and, and these people aren't necessarily people of, of Christian faith um mm -hmm. they're like so what are you doing here I'm like this is what I'm doing and here's who I'm talking with and one of my friends stops me and says what are you going to say Mm. And, um, and before I could answer, she said, because here's what we want you to tell them. Mm. We think that they are the most dangerous people on the planet. Yes. We think that they are the people with the fingers on the triggers of the world's weapons. And then get mm. this. She says, we don't think they're the hope of the world. And we don't think they're irrelevant. We think they're a liability. Mm -hmm. So like out, you crawl outside of the fishbowl and you recognize we're a liability because we've traded wearing a cross for wielding a cross. Mm -hmm. American Christianity is a power over cross-wielding imperial religion, in my point of view. Right. Rather than rather than a movement that's marked by a cross-wearing people, willing to actually lay down our lives for the sake of, of another. Right. You know. So like this, this, and because of the incongruence of these two realities, yeah. that's why we're we're the, the church is hemorrhaging, and so. Yeah. To, to faith leaders who are out there who think, gosh, if we can just like continue to tweak the status quo, maybe we'll stop the flow and we'll, no, like it's not a pedagogy shift. It's not a programmatic shift. It is a soul transformation, ethical, theological shift that has to happen. And that's, that's slow, hard work. And just to bring this back to other episodes that Rob and I have done on this type of topic. Jerry, I know that I know in seminary, you had to read Michael Gorman. I know that because we had the same professors, <laughs> but uh, Michael Gorman has that phrase cruciformity. And so yeah. that's the, that's the phrase that we've talked about on the show, having that Christ, uh, that cross shaped life rather than uh, what you call it? Cross yielding, wielding cross, life. Cross wearing versus cross wearing. Yielding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the same thing that we've been talking about for months now. Awesome. And we had Michael Gorman on to discuss this and, and it was, it was crazy. Lucky. Where do we go from here? Uh, you, are you asking? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah, very much. Where do we go from here? Not oh, for the podcast. I mean, for yeah, the question, yeah. the topic no, at I, hand. <laughs> I, I think, um, 
I think we have a lot of repentance yeah, to do amen. as as a as a people of faith, um, as people of evangelical persuasion mm-hmm. in the United States. And what we haven't, I mean, we we dabbled in kind of thematically, but a whole nother conversation is the intersection between American evangelicalism, whiteness, and racism. Yep. And so it, it's it's not in it, from my point of view. Um, you know, like it's not, it's not a, gosh, I'm, I'm sorry that the way that we've practiced our faith has, has caused, caused some pain. Can we move on? Right. That's, that's not how restoration comes about. You know, I think that, I think that there has to be more of us who are willing to enter into a transformational journey that actually forms us into people who are, um, who know what it means to lament, who knows what it means to be in solidarity, who know what it means to repent, who know what it means to begin to leverage our influence mm-hmm. restoratively. And that will come at very, very, very high cost to our reputations right. and to our platforms and to our pocketbooks. And I tell you what, every reconciling leader in the world that I work with, we all have the same stories of how following Jesus in this restorative cross-wearing way has been wildly costly. But I think that Mm -hmm. like Philippians two actually promises that in the downwardly mobile journey, that's where joy is found. That's Mm -hmm. where fullness is found. It's not in in accumulating power, right? So like there's gotta be more of us who are willing to actually take a downwardly mobile journey, even, even suspending our need to remain employed in this institution, like, mm-hmm, believe it or mm-hmm, not, there mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. other ways yes. to make a living. Yes. No, absolutely. You know? Amen. Preach it. So anyway, I, but, but we're not, we're not going to at this point, And I, I want to bring it back to what I said earlier about the, the power of rhetoric is diminishing. Like we're not going to convince people with great arguments in my, in my opinion of what it, what it is. I think we're, we're kind of working toward here in this conversation. We're going to live people in that direction. Mm-hmm. And so I think we, especially as faith leaders, we need to be thinking very carefully about our own formation and we need to be taking it more seriously than we ever have before. We need to be thinking far differently about the way that we leverage and deploy programming Mm -hmm. and what the outcome of that is. We need to be thinking differently, I think, about what it means to be a spiritual community in the world that the pandemic is changing, suspend the conversations around maintenance and tweaking status quo and start having conversations about what does it mean for golden hills or for you know to be a spiritual reconciling community in this place because if we're not woven into the into the tapestry of our of our context as restorative players and practitioners what are we doing Mm -hmm. you know now the last thing I'll, i'll say is i'm also not arguing for suspending the narration of the good news that we live like I'm, I'm actually more convinced than ever that the way of Jesus is the way of flourishing because I know whose I am. I know who I am. And therefore I know what's mine to do today. Like, I don't, I don't have to wonder what God thinks about me. Mm-hmm. And that is an unbelievably liberating way to live. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's the most fully alive way to be human is the Jesus way, mm-hmm. you know? But I also, in, in that I'm my, my narration of the cross-shaped way of life has very little to do with what happens after I die. And it has everything to do with communion with God and others here and now. I think we need to, we need to be having that conversation uh, more seriously. So that, those are some of my thoughts. I know we've talked before on the leadership team with Nimi that 
you know, what's our target audience. And we've discussed that we want to, we want to address that movable middle Mm -hmm. is what we called it. And what we mean by that, for those of you listening is that there are people within evangelicalism, the white, powerful, old school church that, that want to know, and they want, they, they know there's something more and they want to hear it. You know, so, okay. Yeah. We have this great disconnect we're talking about, but it's not like everybody in that disconnect wants to be there. They, they want to hear. There's a reason why there's a Platt who wrote the book. Radical. Radical. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Who wrote the book. There's a reason why that books like that sell a lot of copies. There's a reason why Francis Chan's books sell mm-hmm. a lot of, because people do want, they want out, but people aren't speaking up. Mm-hmm. And I know so many pastors and just in my context that I'm five years away from retirement. I'm not going to blow this thing up now because I'll just let the next guy come in and do it. And my counsel in these conversations is if you don't begin to bring about transformation and, and change now, the next guy has no chance of succeeding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Wow. That's right. And, and I would, I would say, I mean, just to maybe share a, a quick story to, to illustrate what you just said, like I, I lost my dad to cancer just, mm-hmm. just over two and a half years ago. Sorry and, sorry. and in, in the, the, his eight month journey, the, the, the intimacy of our relationship grew exponentially and the mm. conversations we were able to have, it was just, it was remarkable. And one of the things that I admire the most, my dad, he was only 63 when he, when he passed, but like wow. my dad, like my dad was a cookie cutter, white evangelical Republican American Christian, probably in that order, mm-hmm. you know? And what I admire the most about my dad, especially in, in those probably the last few years of his life, is that the life that his son was living while troubling to him, <laughs> it was contagious enough and we remained committed to the relationship mm-hmm. first. I wasn't trying to convince him of anything. He wasn't trying to convince me of anything. Like I, I was just living, I was following Jesus beyond the riptide and and then I would come back and I would talk to my dad about it. It was so troubling to him, mm-hmm. but slowly, slowly because of the relationship, something like the, the contagion turned into like, there was, there was a trustworthiness. There mm-hmm. was a credibility mm-hmm. to this. Now here's, here's the thing. And I, I'll never forget what my dad said. Like he goes, one of the things I appreciate about your journey is that you're not moving from like conservative Christianity to progressive Christianity. He's like, he, he, my dad had the third way language. He's like, there's a third way. Mm-hmm, and, right. and that's, that's how I, I, I try to put people at ease too. Like the other side of like, in my view, liberation from imperial Christianity doesn't look like progressive Christianity because it's, it's, there's the same arrogance and there's the same fundamentalism mm-hmm. that exists in these, in both of these places. Mm-hmm. Like liberation is liberation. And, um, and if my dad, who was the cookie cutter at 63, could take a journey to the place at which like his theology was changing until his dying day, I have a lot of hope right. for, uh, for, for older evangelicals who might be frustrated and troubled, <laughs> but are also seeing there's a contagion here. There's something going on. Right. And, and for those of you listening in, press in on that, lean in. To maybe tap into the voice of some of our listeners who might be on that, you know, extreme conservative side and they're hearing you talk and they're hearing some of the language that you've been using and, and their spidey senses are going off right now saying, wait a minute, this guy is, he's a progressive, he's, you know, you know, they're, they're putting in the titles, 
you've just said, oh, no, that's not where I'm at. How might you contrast where you're at and maybe nuance that to say, no, it's not these other things that you might be familiar with. And obviously you don't know what everyone's familiar with, but maybe, you know, you know, just how, how might you might parse that out just a little bit? Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I think it's, I think it manifests in my, in my relationships and in the, the content of my conversations. Now in the, in the context of this conversation, this is a theological podcast and I'm offering you my analysis based on, you know, the last several years of research and, and things like this. So I have, I have an analysis, but I don't think, I don't think that moving from one legalistic entity to mm, another legalistic right. entity is any closer to a Jesus who sets us free and invites us to give ourselves away. Right. You know, and, and so it, it's like when, when I consider my friends and the, like, I don't have, I don't have a progressive camp of people that I'm spending all of my time with my people <laughs> are ecumenical and they're interfaith and they're conservative and they're progressive and they're Republican and they're Democrat and they're black and they're white. And, you know, it's, it's like, that's, I feel like, I feel like the evidence of a third way, not that I'm living the third way, but right. I think some of the evidence of that is there, the credibility is found in like the relationships <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that we find ourselves navigating in. And actually enjoying, not to convince anybody of anything, but just to simply be present with, you know. So I think maybe that that's a piece of it. That said, uh, you, you know, there are there are things, uh, there are parts of my peacemaking work that involve political activism, mm -hmm. you know, and um, and there are particular policies that I that I feel align in particular ways. Now I don't think that a nation state can ever. Uh, can never be a Jesus looking reality right. because it takes the accumulation and the abuse of power in order, in order to sustain a nation state. But I do think that our responsibility as followers of Jesus is to, is to keep our leaders accountable mm -hmm. to ensuring that every decision is made protects the humanity, dignity, and image of God of everybody. Everyone, right. So like my political advocacy is rarely connected to any kind of partisan agenda. Um, and I'm talking locally to nationally, and it has more to do with like, that is hurting people. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's, I've no, no yeah, yeah. That question. that's maybe how to interact with it at least Benny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me make one more thought or comment or, or post something out there. And then we'll finish this up in a few minutes. I see so much of, the, of what we might call the establishment, that, that older white evangelical church that, that has been what it is. And sometimes you look at it and go, just, can we just blow it up? Mm -hmm. But the reality is that younger generation needs them. Oh, yeah. They desperately need them and they need each other. And so if you're out there listening, look, don't quit. Don't give up. They need you. And, and they're crying out for everything that you can offer them. They just need you to open up their, your heart and make yourself vulnerable, make yourself aware, because without that, we're going to be just, they're going to end up trying to find this on their own and they're probably not going to end up where they need to end up either. Mm -hmm. and yeah. And to, and to support that, Rob, my generation is not looking for you for, for the, the 65 year old person to tell us what to think. Mm -hmm. We're looking for relationship, yeah, open right. like 6am breakfast. Right we want relationship. I want to understand how faith intersects with your 
relationship with your partner. I want to mm-hmm. understand how faith intersects with your leadership in the business sector, or yeah, I, I want to understand how it shaped the way that you thought about raising your kids. Mm-hmm. I, I want to understand how your faith interacted with economics and the way that you you were generous. Like, give me access to your life in the context of relationship. I, you know, like, and we might even we might even think wildly different theologically. Right. And like, politically. And politically. But I want to, like my, my 60 or 72-year-old mentor I talked about earlier, wildly conservative. But we sat, he opened his home every Tuesday morning mm-hmm. and we studied the Sermon on the Mount together and we talked about it and we lived it and then we talked about what that was like. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. He gave me yeah. access to his life. Yeah. And I bet he was as, as blessed as you were. Maybe. Yeah, I bet he was. I bet he was. Tell us more about how we can get involved with the Global Immersion and the work that you're doing. You can find us at globalimmerse.org and uh, social media. We are at Global Immerse. Um, We're in the process of a massive online renovation at the moment, uh, but that's where you can find us and start to get connected in. We feature cohort-based approaches to formation um, that are deeply immersive, um, focusing specifically on faith leaders. And so we, we work through cohorts and then we do a lot of one-to-one coaching and consulting. Our coaching is focused on formation and our consulting is focused on programmatic reformation. What do you do mm-hmm. uh, in order to shape a reconciling community for the sake of your context? And so those are some of the ways that for those of you listening in can, can connect with, with us there. But then there's also a number of free deliverables that we're putting out in terms of perspectives, um, practices, postures, around what it means to embrace the mundane as everyday peacemakers. And you can find all of those resources like our daily prayers, like our monthly peace and like the everyday peacemaking podcast at globalimmerse.org. Wonderful. Vinny, anything else that you want to finish up with? Yeah, I, actually I do. Um, Jer, we, uh, you and I took Hebrew grammar together like 12 years ago, 13 years ago, whatever it was. And our dear, we were talking about our dear Hebrew professor, uh, Dale, the sweetest man I've ever met outside of Rob Dowerble. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. He's more, no, Dale was sweeter. Do do you remember how Dale had us learn the Hebrew alphabet? And can you still recall that? Man, you're going to have to do it for me. I'm not going to do it because it was in the form of song. I can't believe you don't remember. Dale literally recorded like a computer synthesized version of Yankee Doodle and sang the Hebrew alphabet along with it. And that's how we had to learn the Hebrew alphabet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. No, that's that's bringing it back. It is, yeah. It's, it, it still haunts me, but it's it's a helpful twice. I should yeah, have had you learn the, the Greek alphabet, Vinny, then by um maybe Dr. Seuss or something like Sesame Street. I, yeah, See, totally. when I when I got to Greek with you, it just I'm like, yeah. wait, where's the songs? Yeah, and you never I was, had I was like Rob. way down on your list of yeah. That's why. Of, that's why. That's impressive. why Vinny, Vinny's fluent in Hebrew and he's terrible at Greek. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no comment. <laughs> no comment. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much, yeah. Jer. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks it. for hanging out, man. This is awesome to reconnect and just hear what's going on. So many cool things. I mean, just it, it's just amazing to hear, you know, the reach that you've had uh, literally globally. I mean, it's so yeah. cool. Uh, thank and, you. know, this is it's fun. Thanks for creating some space just to kick around these things, you know. It, yeah. And uh, and I claim to not be right on on any of it, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, but I think this is like my 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 rabbi friends um, talk about the, like their, their word for this kind of conversation is machlochit, which is such a good throaty word, speaking of Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And machlochit um, is righteous disagreement. And the concept mm-hmm. is that, that we all hold portions of what is good, true, and beautiful. And it, as we spar and as we talk and as we wonder, 
we actually discover something together. We mm. discover a more beautiful reality together. That's Machloket. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is what you guys are doing on this podcast is creating some environments for us to happen. So thanks for doing it. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Maybe when, we, when you finish up your uh, dissertation, then we'll have you back to discuss some more of the research and things that Let's you've done. All right, cool. Wonderful. So thank you very much. All right, everyone. Well, hey, come back next week. We're going to launch into our study on the gospel of Matthew. So read up and uh, continue to check out the devotions that are coming out on determinedtruth.com. And we will see everyone soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.